Father, we thank you so much that we can come to you. And Lord, that you have put a portion of yourself inside us in your Holy Spirit. Something totally uncreated. We are your church. The only thing in this entire universe uncreated is you and your church. And I thank you, God, so much that we can be a part of something so glorious as God. That we can connect with you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, we're just going to take a moment. We're going to wait upon you. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts. And Lord, that we would openly and, and, and just repent if there's anything that we know that we have against, that you have against us, that we have against you, Lord. There is one thing that, that squashes all of our differences with you, and that's the cross. So Lord, we remember the cross right now. Lord, I pray for all our kids downstairs, Lord, that you would touch them, that you would minister to them, you would give our teachers love for them and wisdom. Lord, we just want to be right with you. We just want to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, this is our second week in Genesis chapter 25. We looked at the first couple of verses last week. Uh, Keturah and her, so Abraham married Keturah and they had some sons and we saw how that paralleled the end times in the book of Revelation and how uh, the nation of Israel will come back into a, a, a relationship with God in some ways and how the, during the millennium that they will be the people of God again. And we saw how Abraham having Keturah as a bride kind of foreshadowed that after Sarah had died and after the son had received his bride. And it was a really neat study. So if, you, if you're interested in, in Keturah and the names of her children, I would encourage you to look up our website, the podcast, and, and take a listen to that because it, it blew my mind as I was studying it at least. But today we're going we're gonna to kind of proceed through the, the, the chapter here in chapter 25 of Genesis. Life is long. You know, 70 or 80 years for most of us. And it's so amazing to me to listen and to hear what's said about people at their funerals. Have you guys ever been to a funeral of someone that was 70 or 80 years old? And, and people, you could tell, were trying hard to come up with good things to say about this person. Or maybe you went to a great funeral and it was awesome and, and they're just... You know, everyone was happy, and, or maybe not happy, sad that they died, died but, but definitely full. They lived a full life. And then you go to those funerals where someone, it's like they, they missed a few roadsides along the path of life, right? They were going along, and they may have gotten distracted for a few dozen years and lived after their own desires, and, and maybe they're Families paid the price. Maybe their relationships paid the price. Maybe they didn't really have any of those families or relationships at the end of it. And so you get to the end of their life, and at their funeral, it's just sad. There's almost nothing sadder than a funeral of someone who, who died on the wrong road, on the wrong path. It's sad. It's really sad. Well, today we're going to see Abraham dies. Abraham dies, 
And we're going to see God's story is going to progress, though, through his son, Isaac, the son of promise. You know, Abraham is an extremely important person in the Bible. He's mentioned over 70 times in the New Testament alone. I mean, this guy, we've been studying him for weeks and months now, his life, how God has been asking him and building into him a life that believes in his promises. And, and we've, been, we've been growing with Abraham. So it's kind of like a funeral today. Oh, kind of sad. But we're going to begin working and seeing God's working with his son, Isaac. I want you to remember and recall right now that Abraham is a type of the father and Isaac is a type of the son. As we've been going through these stories, we've seen so many times where that has been accurate. When Abraham had to sacrifice his son Isaac, God called him to do that to be a picture of what he would eventually do with his own son, Jesus. And we've seen that. But we're going to pick it up now in verse 5 of chapter 25 here. It says, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. We're going to stop right there because we go really fast through the Bible and we study it. Remember that this pictures this relationship between the father and the son. And so some people think that Jesus is the son of God and so he's less powerful than the father or, or less important. But biblically, the son is absolutely equal to the father. This is what we call the Trinity. And so if you've never... Um, if, you, if you haven't grown up in the church, you may not have heard the word Trinity before. You might have grown up in the church and known about the Trinity, and that's, it's, it's something that's in the Bible very clearly, but yet the Bible never says the word Trinity. It's amazing. It's one of the very first things we need to learn when we come to the Bible is that there is a Trinity, and it's clearly taught in the Bible, but yet it's never stated directly in the Bible. So how can that be? Well, we look at the various things that, that God does. We look at creation, how God created the world. We can all say God created the world, right? But at different places in the Bible, it says the Father created the world, the Son created the world, and the Spirit created the world. We look at the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man. We see that it's attributed to Jesus, to the Father, and to the Spirit. All had parts in it. Even the crucifixion, we see all three of them mentioned. We have the baptism of Jesus, all three of them having different parts. And so we see there's this equality in the Trinity, but yet they have different, they're different persons, but they're all the same God. And it's one God. It's, it's beyond comprehension. And people say, well, I wish, you know, that we could just understand what, what the Trinity is, but it's impossible to do that. And it proves that it's true that you can't understand it because God is infinite. And if he could be understood completely and perfectly explained, then he wouldn't be God. He's, he's too big for our brains to figure out. And so this Trinity thing is kind of interesting, but we see here, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. There's this giving going on in this relationship. Even, even though Jesus lived in total submission to the father's will, he claimed and demonstrated that he was equal to the Father in authority and power. There, there was no difference between the two. See, there's this loving relationship of submission and direction and equipping. And so when you look at the, the three people of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have this really interesting relationship where the Father speaks his will and direction. 
the Son submits to that will and direction, and the Spirit equips and enables the Son to do that will. It's amazing, and it it perfectly illustrates how we have a relationship with God as well. We listen to the will of the Father. We submit to the Son, like the Son, and we are equipped and enabled to do that by the Spirit. So there's a quick lesson on the Trinity for you just from that first verse. So we get to verse 6 now. He says, And Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. So here we see a couple of really interesting things. First is that Abraham makes sure to separate all of his other sons from Isaac. Why was that? Because Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the one that God had established as being the line that the Messiah would come from. Abraham um, is giving all of his life to the belief in God's promise. He's living by faith here. He's not, he doesn't have a backup plan saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep a couple of these other sons around just in case it doesn't work out with Isaac. He's putting all his eggs in one basket. And what basket is that? The promise of God. The promises of God. Then the second thing we see in this verse that's really interesting is that Abraham had concubines which I just want to smack him upside the head. Why, Abraham, would you have concubines? Well, Abraham was not perfect. Abraham, he still, though, is a man of faith, and God doesn't gloss over his mistakes and his failures. Why is this in the Bible? Well, the Bible tells us about the failures failures of its heroes. And that's a really important thing that the Bible does that the other religious books in the world do not do. They don't talk about the mistakes and sins of their heroes, but the Bible is true. And so it gives us the full picture and it makes it more reliable for us. Because God isn't saying that Abraham was perfect. God isn't setting some sort of unrealistic expectations up for you. That you need to be perfect for God, in order for God to use you and be faithful to promise you things and work in your life. He doesn't say you have to be perfect. He just uses faith. And Abraham was a man of faith. Should Abraham have had concubines? No, absolutely not. But did he try to cover up his sin? I don't think he did. See, he provides for their needs. He, he, he still desires to honor God, though, through a life of faith. He wants to just put everything he has towards believing the promises at the end of his life. Remember, the promise was to bless the whole earth through one of his offspring and that God would come and help and save the whole human race through a descendant of Isaac. That's what Abraham is putting his hope in. And we got to remember that because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to really see that promise and what it means for us. Now we get to verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, 
which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zehor the Hittite. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. So here Abraham dies. It says he's gathered to his people. That means that he believed and knew that there was an afterlife. The people back here, they believed that their, their life mattered, that it was important. Death was not the end. It was just the doorway to eternal life. Well, how can someone know that? How can we know that? By faith. For a man of faith, death is no problem. Just like in The Princess Bride, Wesley said, I I told you I would always come for you. Why didn't you wait for me? And Buttercup says, well, you were dead. Wesley says, death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a little while. Buttercup said, I will never doubt again. And Wesley said, there will never be a need. Oh my gosh, this is so biblical. (laughs) It's awesome. So awesome. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By faith. The same way that they're saved today. They just looked forward to the Messiah's sacrifice instead of back to the Messiah we know as Jesus and his sacrifice. It's the way it happens. So we, get, we got to push on. Verse 11, it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt in Be'er Lahai Roy. And this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to the generations. The firstborn of Ishmael was Nebajoth. I can't pronounce that name. Then Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, and a whole bunch of other names. Go down to verse 17. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his lives and died and was gathered to his people. And they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go towards Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. Here we have the, the little story of Ishmael's death. And see, Abraham had to trust the Lord with Ishmael. If you remember, God told Abraham to send Ishmael away so that Isaac could dwell with Abraham and Isaac could grow up being the son of promise. And God said, you're going to have to trust me. I have a plan for Ishmael. I'm going to bless Ishmael, but you got to trust me. Ishmael pictures the efforts of the flesh. I don't know why that just turned off, but Ishmael pictures, I think we lost a uh, breaker. Ishmael pictures the efforts of the flesh. And Abraham sending him away pictures complete surrender to God's plan. Complete abandon to the Lord. Even the things he loved, he gave up to follow the Lord because he loved God more and he cared more about God's, what God cared about than about what he thought his life was all about. And that shows a lot about um, Abraham's life. And here's the question for us. Do you love more God more than all of your life? Even the best things in your life, even the good things in your life, does God have a higher place than those things? Because he does deserve it. He gives those things as gifts to us, but not to distract us from himself. So we get to verse 19 now. It says, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Verse 21, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So look carefully at that verse. It says, Isaac pleaded with God for his wife. Now, he got married at 40. His son isn't born until he's 60. So really what happened is Isaac spent 20 years pleading with God for his wife to have a child. David Guzak gives us this quote. He says, even the son of promise does not come into the promise easily. It only comes through waiting and prayer. Have you ever believed a promise, but had to wait to see that promise come to pass? Had to wait. This is one of the most powerful lessons for the bride of Christ. Even though we have great and precious promises, we still have to pray about them. We must persevere in prayer. Have you ever heard that term before? Persevere in prayer. That's what we're going to learn about for a minute here. Why do we need to persevere in prayer? Because there are parts of our hearts that do not fully believe the promise. There are parts of our hearts that we may not even be able to see that don't believe. See, we are not the ones waiting for God to finally get around to performing his promises to us. Sometimes I think we think that. Sometimes we think, oh, God is taking forever to answer this, this promise that he's given me, to answer my request. So I've, I've read this in the Bible. I want to believe it, but it takes forever to wait for God. No, that's not the truth, though. In reality, he is the one who's being patient for us to fully believe in his promise. That's the reality. In Mark 9.24, Jesus is healing this father's child. This father, his child was sick. He comes to Jesus and says, please heal me, my, my daughter. And it says, immediately the father's child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's what's going on when you have to wait for an answer. And that's the heart we should have is the same one as this father. See, we are mistaken. We are deceived and, and prideful if we say that we perfectly believe all of God's promises right now. You might not even be able to see the darkened and calloused areas of your own heart that holds back to fully surrendering to these promises. Fully surrendered belief. That's why humility is required to follow the Lord and, and to obtain his grace. His grace is a free gift. It's totally free, but the giver chooses who he gives it to. And he tells us very clearly in the word that he gives his grace to the humble. To the humble, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, they all say God gives his grace to the humble. That's the person he chooses. So how did Isaac obtain this child? By praying harder? By, by convincing God that it was a good idea? 
No, by believing the promise and choosing humility and waiting until his heart totally believed. The promise that one of his children would be the Messiah, that God would come and help his people and help the whole world to save the people of the world, that his descendants would inherit the land. All these things God promised to Isaac through Abraham and to Isaac himself. So Isaac had this promise. You know, and it's funny because those are actually the same exact promises that we need to believe just from a different perspective. We're on the backside of it. And we need to look back and believe it. He was on the front side looking forward. But see, he, Isaac, had to pray and continue to pray until every rebellious part of his heart was conquered by believing in grace. And it took time. So let's apply this to our lives, okay? What has God promised you? Let's take a few examples of actual promises made by to God's children who you guys are. If you believe in Jesus, you're one of his children. These are promises, actual promises from the Bible for you. God promised that if you search for him with all your heart, you'll find him. That's a promise. He's promised, he promised that his love for you will never fail. No matter what you feel like, no matter what you do, his love for you will never fail. God's promised blessing for all those who delight themselves in his word. He's promised salvation for all who believe in his son. He's promised that all things will work to the good of his children. He's promised comfort in your trials. He's promised to finish the work he started in you. He's promised peace when you pray. He has promised to supply all your needs. Those are real promises in the word of God for you. Is there any one of those promises where your heart said, yeah, maybe? You may have heard the term name it and claim it. You guys heard that term? Usually it's used by greedy and materialistic people, honestly. That's usually the context that churches have. And, and we know from Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 5, it says, let, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as, as you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we know the context of name it and claim it when it's saying, name a Porsche, name it, and you just claim it, and God will give it to you. A million dollars, you want a million dollars? Write it on the memo line of your tithe check. And it's totally wrong. That's completely materialistic and violates the word of God. We cannot do that. But name it and claim it. I want to I retake that phrase today. I want to remake it. I want to give it totally new context, new meaning that's biblical and accurate. Okay? There's a measure of truth behind this phrase that we can extract. I'd like to take this phrase back. So we're going to engage with God through his promises. We just listed a bunch of promises. And I want us to think about this like that long road of life that we're on. And as we journey on this life towards heaven, each promise that we read, like the ones we just read and other ones that you could read in the word of God, they're like road signs, giant road signs that name the direction you're going or the, or the landmark ahead. We'll say we're going to Los Angeles. 
You ever get in your car and head to Los Angeles? You get street signs that say, Los Angeles, 1,000 miles. You know, we're about 1,000 miles. And then a little while later, there's another one that says, you're going this way. But we're going to take this and we're going we're to consider one promise along with this. So it's kind of like this, I need you guys to focus because we're going to do like a dual like road, like illustration plus illustration, like two levels. So it's going to be hard. We need left and right brain going at the same time. No brains tied behind your back, all right? So we're going to think about this promise, the one that says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. We should all have it memorized. If you get tattoos, you should tattoo that one right on you, all right? 1 John 1, 9. And very important promise for us. In other words, God's saying God promises that you're, if you're honest with him about your sin... He will always forgive you and will bring about a change in your life so you don't walk in that unrighteousness anymore. That's what that promise is in our common vernacular, the Sean translation. In other words, what we can do is we can name it that God's promise says this to me. I'm going to name that promise. God says he loves me and if I'm honest with him about my sin, he's going to forgive me and then he's going to change my life. I'm going to name it. But then we need to claim it. Well, how do you claim it? Well, it's like it's a long process. It can be a long process of praying these promises into our hearts. It's generally not a one-time event. Some people can just wholeheartedly believe in one second, and those people like generally go off and be missionaries and die for their faith and glorious martyrs, Okay. But most of us, we, we go slowly with the Lord. We develop this slow relationship with the Lord, and we need to constantly be praying these promises into our heart. It's like, it's like building a castle. It's one brick at a time. Or growing a garden, one weed at a time. It's just a slow process. Is getting our hearts to fully engage with God through these promises. So it's like you're driving to L.A., and you see a street sign that says, Los Angeles, this way. And you say, okay, I'm on the right road. But five minutes later, you scream out, where is Los Angeles? Why is it taking so long? Why am I not seeing the, seeing the reality of these promises in my life? I put my trust in that road sign. What am I ever going to do now? I heard some good advice recently. It said, never give up on your dreams. Keep sleeping. <laughs> no, we can't give up. Instead of this, that craziness, like five minutes later and just freaking out when the promises don't come true like that, we should stay on the road and remember the sign. It said, Los Angeles is that way on this road. Remember the signs. Remember the road sign and talk with our Lord and talk with your car mates about those signs and your confidence in those signs. When the road gets long, I hate road trips. Oh my gosh. I, am, I, I hate, there are not words to describe how much I hate. And I fall asleep when I'm driving. It's not healthy in any way for my, I hate how long. Sometimes life gets long, Right? we got to remember the signs. Are we ever going to get there? 
yes, the sign said so. There's a promise that says yes. When the road gets bumpy, remember the signs. Are you sure this is the right way? Because my life sucks right now. Yes, this is the right way. Keep believing the promises, the signs. When the road gets lonely, remember the signs. I wish I had someone to talk to in this car. All everyone in the car is sleeping. I hate that. <laughs> Go to church and talk to us. We'd love to be with you on your journey, your road trip of life. We'd love to give you a hug. When the road gets confusing, remember the signs. Let's break out that roadmap. Remind ourselves of the signs we've seen so far. Open up the Bible, look at the promises, and believe them. That's what this is all about. When you remember the signs, you grow in trust for the sign maker. This is praying about the promises over and over and over again. God, you said that if I came to you through Jesus, you would cleanse my life. I'm coming to you through Jesus. Cleanse my life. That day gets screwed up. You come back again. God, you said, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to come to you again. You mess up that day. You come back again. God will be faithful to his promises. This is not about trying to get stuff done, but growing in trust for the one who does get stuff done. The sign maker does not lie. He makes no mistakes and there are no false word, uh, road signs in the Bible. It is completely true. They are all real. They are all true because he is true and the author of truth. He can't, he can't ever lie. Each one of them can be trusted. You can build your life upon them. You can make your decisions based upon them. You can use them as the guide and compass for your life. We get in so much trouble when we're driving down the road on our own abilities and we get our own ideas of which way to go. And his signs may go against what looks and what feels right to us. Like when I'm sure I know where I'm going and I refuse to stop and ask for directions. That's what we do. And it's nothing but Manly pride. And God is not giving his grace to pride. It's humility. God's intention is that you do all of your driving in this life with him. Knowing him. Trusting him. How? Through his signs. His promises. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, street sign, of God. Every promise that he makes, that's what we're to live on because God does not lie. But Satan, ha <laughs> he lies. He's the father of lies and he's like a tagger on the street signs of your life. He tries to cover over the true messages with lies. He crowds out the messages of the real signs with his own deceitful signs. He's putting up all over the real signs. His signs are more beautiful, too. He hires marketing experts. They're like the huge billboards you get to as you're driving through Las Vegas. 
on your way to LA. You guys know what I'm talking about. Filled with lights and temptations and invitations and empty promises. Free steak dinner. Free lobster. Free money. Free relationships. Free fun. No consequences. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? But it's all lies. When Satan, he, he puts into effect this well-thought-out plan to destroy you and deceive you and ruin you, he makes it look attractive. But you, if you're looking at God's promises, and if you keep in mind God's promises, you'll be able to easily spot and say, no, God said this road went to Los Angeles. This is going to get me to heaven. So I don't care if the world says I need to be this, or my parents say I need to be this. No, God says I need to trust his word and his promises. That's it. I'm going to believe the promises. But we don't have to get off in Vegas, do we? There's hotels just past it that are not all sleazy. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is a real important verse for us. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who, meaning God's going to keep his promises and he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will make a way of escape, a road of escape that you may be able to bear it. Follow the road marked with the signs, seeking the sign maker. Isaac does this with Rebecca. He spends 20 years. He saw a sign 20 years ago that he believes for 20 years and he perseveres in prayer. In his heart, day after day, as he's pleading, God, please, I don't want to have concubines. I don't want to do like my father did with, with Hagar, the, the, the handmaiden. I don't want to do it in my flesh. I want to see you come through. And he prayed that for 20 years. He persevered in prayer. He didn't get sidetracked and give up. For us, we keep coming to church even when it's difficult. We keep spending time alone with God even when it's just silence and tears. We keep trusting those old dusty promises that your grandma used to teach you as she bounced you on her knee. Even if those are the only ones you know. Isaac got to his destination. He obtained the promise. His wife got pregnant. His joy is full. God is not his enemy. God is his provider. He wasn't trying for 20 years to get God to be his friend. He was just growing to trust that God would provide. We are not trying to get God to give us something contrary to his nature when we're asking him to fulfill his promises. We're just waiting upon him to give us all that he promises and chooses to give us. So now we get to verse 22. We are done right now in this verse. He says, but the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. A really beautiful thing, men, 
is that when you decide to believe in your promise from God, your wife follows along with you. When something happens in her life, she's like, hey, what's going on here? She's not like, let me figure out a fleshly way to deal with this. No, she says, I've watched my husband for 20 years go to the Lord in faith. And I'm going to follow that example. And I am going to go to the Lord in faith today. And she does that. What has God done, she says. Is there a son of promise in this womb? Why is there so much conflict in the fulfillment of this promise? Why does she feel like there's two people fighting for control inside her? For the answer to all those questions and more, you'll have to come back next week. Is that good for a teaser? See, it's, it's truly going to blow your mind and change how you look at everything in your life when we dive into the lives of Jacob and Esau. It is going to just absolutely rock you. Next week is like one of the, oh, I just can't tell you how excited I am. Because each of you are pregnant with twins right now. Not. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. We're going to come up sing two more songs or one. How many have we got? Two more songs. And as Jesus has been encouraging us to persevere in prayer, my, my encouragement to you is keep believing in those promises. And the way you can engage with God in that is obviously through communion, which we, we do during this time of worship. So during these songs, just get up at your own convenience and, uh, and come up and grab communion. Husbands, serve your wives. You know, this is our time to say, I can believe and trust in these promises, not because of what I see, because my road looks horrible right now. My, it's bumpy, it's lonely, it's messed up. My marriage is this, my family is that, my, all this is messed up. It doesn't matter, because God says if you come to him, he'll help you through it, and you can trust him because of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. And that's what we trust when we come to communion. So if you have a trust in Jesus and you want to come to Jesus, you are absolutely able to say, Father, I need you and I believe. And Lord, help my unbelief. But I have something inside me that, that wants and is being called to trust you and to believe in what your son did for me. Lord, I pray that right now I would fully surrender at least what I know. I would surrender all of my mind and heart and soul to, to, to believe your promises. Lord, you say that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our trespasses when we just confess to you. When we acknowledge that we're sinners and we need you, Lord. And we believe that Jesus, you are God. And you will forgive us and you will change us from the inside that we don't have to try to change ourselves, God. You do a spiritual work of renewal inside us. Lord Jesus, we come to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in all of our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone in here that's struggling against just unbelief, they just don't believe, Lord, I just pray 
Lord, not that they would be convinced in their mind, but they would feel and know the call of your spirit. Lord, no one becomes good except through having your good spirit placed within them. And you give your spirit to all who will ask. Lord, I pray we would all trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.